All right. Uh, today, uh, Dr. Jeff Schultz, when we met, you were just Je the regular Jeff Schultz, actually, I, I think. You've known me for a long time. I had a big red afro, probably, and uh, was it like a blue belt, purple belt, maybe? Um, I don't remember. I, I, I yeah, we weren't, we weren't black belts, though. Yeah. Was I? No. No, I think they made you wear a white belt, but you, you got a purple belt real quick. And you showed up on the mats, and I was like, this guy's not an average white belt when I rolled with you the first time. Oh, they made me wear a white belt? I think they made Oh, did they? Oh, no, I was a purple belt yeah, <laughs> when I no. came. I was already, no, I was a Gracie Baja purple belt. Okay. They yeah, yeah. you with a white belt for a second. I don't know. They might have, like, maybe I forgot the belt, and they're like, hey, just wear this. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> I could see that. Because <laughs> yeah. I think that's before GB Wear picked up, right? Yeah, when was that? 2009? 2010? Probably nine. Yeah. Yeah, 2009. You just got real good real quick. That was yeah. a while ago. Yeah. 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 I'm I, happy to be here, by the way. Oh, Thanks yeah. So welcome, man. Here. Welcome, dude. Awesome. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to my abode. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I sleep under the table. Um, yeah, no, thanks for coming. I know you're out there because, um, uh, you know, the studio's in um, San Clemente, and you're, you're in Long Beach, so that's quite a drive, and I appreciate you weathering the 405 did you drive the 405 I, I cheated i took the 73 over here oh I the toll to road avoid traffic oh man oh wow yeah does yeah. that avoid traffic yeah okay because yeah. i just hopped on at the 405 yeah like i i work for the long beach va uh -huh. so i'm right there i can just pretty much hop right on the 405 take 73 right down here oh sweet man all right yeah that's that's pretty cool yeah i used, actually used to drive up there because i had a business up there with um <laughs> an ex-girlfriend and I used to drive up the 405 and I thought, should I take the 73? But what I did was I was more flexible. So I was able to time, like if you drive that 405 in the morning, like, uh, 10 AM mm -hmm. to like noonish, mm -hmm. it's wide open. So you can do a direct shot. Then at night, I'd usually come back around 10, 11 PM, mm -hmm. you know, and drive it. Cause the rest of it, it's a parking lot, man. It's ridiculous. I wish I could have that 10 AM time to drive down the freeway. I'm I'm 8 to 4.30 every single day. I'm working for the federal government. Oh, the feds, man. The feds. You work for Uncle Sam. I Are do. you a federal employee? Is that how it's yes, considered? I am. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. So my full-time work in the VA as a staff psychologist in the Center for Excellence for Spinal Cord Injury at the Tybor Rubin VA. And then in my off time, I work at a private practice called PAC-PC doing assessment therapy for medical legal situations and then uh yeah and then i just train that's what i fill my time with do you know do you when since you're dealing with the spine do you do a little bit of brain stuff at all yeah so i i specialized in kind of acquired brain injury it's a overall like term so it's uh -huh. stroke um tumors cancer all kinds of stuff as also traumatic brain injury so it's this all-encompassing thing i i specialized in that for about two years in postdoc and now because I've done so many different things, the opportunity for spinal cord injury um, opened up and, it, and I have some specialty in it because I'm a rehabilitation psychologist. Oh, I like wow. rehab like substance use, but rehab like PTOT, speech yeah. therapy. Wow. People that are acutely hospitalized during that process, I help them adjust to their injuries and try to support them as hopefully they regain some amount of functional independence. Okay, sweet, man. Do you know what? Um there's someone, you may know him. He trains in Irvine, mm -hmm. but he hasn't been training. Okay. He got in a car accident, and he's having some neurological problems. He definitely had spine injuries because he had to get spinal surgery. Okay. 
He he got hit by a mail truck. Yeah. Well, he's in a car. Yeah. Okay. That's a big court case. Yes. It's weird because the it's the delivery of trucks, mm-hmm. but it hit him twice. I don't know how that happened. It hit him, and the guy the, the guy like I guess the both cars were still in motion, so the uh, the delivery truck veered away, then came back in and hit him harder, trying to gain control of the delivery truck. And um, I just spoke to him today, the guy. I don't want to put his business out, sure. even though he posts about it on social media. Mm-hmm. But I want to maybe I should tell him about that pack place that you work at or maybe you can advise him because he's starting to have memory problems. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't remember, like, simple things and it's starting to mess with his work. How long ago was the injury? About a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so most people that end up having some kind of brain injury recover depending on the severity, right? Uh-huh. Uh, depends on how severe it was. I'm, I'm thinking most people that have a concussion recover without complication. There's a small number of them that do not. Um, but moderate to severe brain injury, it can definitely cause lasting memory problems. But there's also all the sequela, which is this technical term that means like things that happen after an injury. Mm-hmm. Anxiety, depression, pain. He has that. Yeah. And all that stuff would interfere with your normal functioning. If you're dealing with pain, you have a hard time focusing on things. If you're depressed, it just downregulates everything, even just the frontal lobe functioning, which is involved in memory and concentration. Oh, crap. So there can be a lot of um, ways to skin a cat that causes the memory problems, right? Lots of potential causes for that. Um, But, uh, yeah, I feel for him. Um, I would say... He can always get cognitive rehabilitation if he hasn't done that. Um, there's a lot of great centers around here. I could recommend one. Yeah, um, yes. But like speech therapists or neuropsychologists can offer a lot of resources and, and even develop compensatory strategies. And, you know, there are some people's that, people that overcome brain injuries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, no, I'm just adjusting your mic because it has yeah. a point right at your mouth or it goes like, <laughs> yeah, I could hear it. Sorry, it's me, man. Sorry, it's not you, it's I me. I move around a lot too. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm like the bad girlfriend. It's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. Um, yeah, no, he has very bad, uh, it's weird. When he got in the accident, he thought he was okay afterwards. And then obviously he had spinal pain. He's like, what the heck? And then when he got checked, like discs were blown out. And so he got that fixed, but he's like, is this like... His memory would be normal, then go away. Then normal, then go away. Mm-hmm. Then he get depressed, and he goes, "Normal, I'm a pretty upbeat guy." Like his, he feels like it changes his uh, baseline. Yeah, you know of. Uh, Did he feeling. have a laminectomy? Do you know a spinal fusion? Um, I don't know. I don't. Details. I don't know. I know he got in because there's so many. Like, I got. We got another friend of ours. Uh, you know, Cub, right? Cub. I don't know him personally, oh, okay, but I yeah. know of him. Yeah, yeah, he he got his back worked on. And so, and then Chad, <laughs> there's so many people, I mix, they, they kind of mix in my head. Mm-hmm. I just know that he had to wear like a, we joke, like a dog cone, but it was like for humans, right? The little thing on his neck so he couldn't move. I can't remember. They did some things. They didn't fuse, but maybe did something to relieve some nerve pain, Um yeah, but I could tell you, I know one thing. He's definitely a different personality. And I've told him, that. I was like, dude, you are, um, you're different. I, I could tell. Like, it's it's real. Good or bad? I would say bad, to be honest, you know. Like, less than what he once was. Okay, less as he once was, not on top of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
like his 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 decision making, like his his reasoning, like he's doing things he wouldn't normally do. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. the The first thing that really is a sign of brain injury is your processing speed tends to go down. So that's like how quickly you can make a decision, how quickly you can think on your feet, you know, do certain things. Um, that usually goes down first when it, when you have a brain injury, and there's an important factor that people have, let's just say, only so many brain cells, right? There's a technical term that's escaping me right now. Um, but as they accrue more and more injuries, you know, it, it takes away, let's say, that reserve, that cognitive reserve that you have, and you only have ever have so much. Wait, they're dying when you get a brain injury? Like they're f- losing function? Oh, yeah. You hit your head, you're losing brain cells. Holy crap. Yeah. Anytime, even just punching yourself, you lose some small amount, some modicum. Although, I don't have a lot to spare, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> Based on everything you've accomplished and your vocabulary, you know, just to be candid, you have a pretty good cognitive. Oh, uh, do I? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then maybe I'm more emotionally damaged. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Continue. So with like brain injuries, you have this cognitive reserve. And some people, let's say you had Einstein, if he has the same kind of head injury as someone else that was maybe of more lower intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Einstein would recover better and be able to do more because he had that, let's say, extra gas tank. He had a, a bigger gas tank than somebody else, if I was trying to use a metaphor. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, that was an analogy, excuse me. So with your friends, this person that I may know, he may have had, you know, a limited kind of reserve and then also this injury plus all kinds of other stuff, like how he even feels about himself like your confidence in your memory can affect your memory. If I feel like I'm not going to be able to remember it, maybe I'm not using the kind of strategies like review, rehearsal, chunking. These are all things that you can use as scaffolding to try to remember more. You know, it's interesting you said that. I had, he and I had a heart-to-heart conversation. I remember this wrong. It wasn't today. It was yesterday. <laughs> and we were talking about this. And, I mean, it. he's like, man, I'm, I'm in a bad way, dude. Like, because he's in a um, cells and, you know, you don't, you know, you don't work, you don't eat. So he has a track and normally he's, you know, appointments, this, that, or whatever. He'll forget. He'll forget all kinds of things. But um, I remember telling him, I said, look, stop telling yourself that your memory's bad. Because I learned from math in college, like, because some math, I was like, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah self-fulfilling. Or, you, you mm-hmm. know, your subconscious hears your mouth mm-hmm. say these crazy things. I said, start thinking, I'm okay and I'm going to recover. I mean, you know, start saying that. And he's, yeah, 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 I'm going to. And so he's actually taking a little break from everything and try to recruit. But his, yeah, his behavior, it's, um, this is not what he did, but I'll just give an example. Like, say if he doesn't drink, he started drinking, you know, and drinking a lot. Mm -hmm. And like, dude, I thought you don't drink. Mm? Yeah, I don't know why I was drinking. Like, he doesn't even know why he did it. Like, it's crazy. And that's another really funny thing about brain injury is you can have, diffuse damage you can have very localized damage diffuse means it's all over depending mm-hmm. if there's like a, a whipping of the head depending if there's an open injury or close-headed injury or even if there's brain swelling afterwards and it makes it really hard for you to predict exactly what you're gonna see i've been in inpatient units where there's somebody that was completely out of it had no memory and then all of a sudden they just cleared up the next day yeah. and and all of a sudden they were functioning like a normal human being once again Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they had a hard time with certain activities, certain um, 
activities of daily living would be the technical term. Yeah. But there are some people that have like a small, what would be seemingly a small injury and it completely causes all kinds of issues for them. They just can't live or function anymore. Yeah. Um, so it, it, there, it depends on where he was injured, how badly he was injured and also his recovery. And it's difficult to always predict these things, but you know, the classic story of brain injury was Phineas Gage, which I'm sure you heard about in introductory psychology where he was a miner. He was using a, a ramrod, like a, a large metal tool. Oh, it went through his head, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. went down and it went through his frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe, as you know, is involved in uh, memory. It's involved in personality. He was a pretty conscientious guy. He was like a foreman. And then after he got this frontal lobe injury, he became much more crude, You know, drank a lot, cursed, because it, if you have damage to that frontal lobe, it can change your personality. But also you have all the emotional things, like I was saying. If I'm depressed, maybe I'm just not thinking about my decisions. I become more impulsive. Maybe I'm drinking because I'm in pain. And then that means that I'm, you know, making less well-educated decisions because of these things. Yes. Well, drinking is putting it lightly, but he makes it rational. And I said, dude, I've actually talked to him. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk off camera because this whole thing will go down the hole. But... It's interesting you say these two things that come to my mind because I brought you on for a reason and and we're going to, not to, no pun intended, but I brought you on for a reason um, because your background in trauma, just emotional trauma. Before we get there, I have just two brain injury things I want to say real quick because I don't want people to go, what is this, a brain injury episode? Mm -hmm. Um, The first is that uh, when I was a kid, I was probably like nine. I just... I don't know how old I was, but we we had just I screw, I did elementary school in Italy and I came back here, right? Really yeah, Naples, Napoli, and um, actually a friend of mine. We got real close as of late because you know when you go through drama, you gotta. Her family's from Naples. I'm like, really? You blah blah blah, and they're like, we're talking about the same. I dude, I sent them pictures. I was like, I played baseball for the city of Napoli, and I'm like in a Naples uh, baseball uniform. She goes, holy crap! But moving forward. Um, came back. Do you remember when Taco Bell were dating ourselves? Do you remember when Taco Bell, it was outside and had umbrellas? Or are, are we the same age? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm, I'm older than you. I'm, I'm probably older. Masters too. I just got into Masters too. <laughs> you still won't say your age. <laughs> are you, are you in your forties? I'm 36. Okay. Never mind. Never mind. Well, Taco Bell, <laughs> jujitsu, we don't, we don't state our age and we always Minus about five to 10 pounds from our weight. If anyone's listening here, like, hey, hey, Jeff, how much do you weigh? If he weighed 180, he goes, ah, 175, 170. You know, mm-hmm. we always do that. It's a cycle. But we need to tell ourselves this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, back in the day, Taco Bell, they were all outdoor eateries. Like, you only could walk up and get your food, and then you sit down at these concrete tables and benches with That's this cool. umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. Never. Yeah, yeah, the good old days. Well, I slipped and fell at one of those because when it was rains, the cement would be wet. Slipped and fell, got knocked out cold, dude. Mm. And um, even the whole little tunnel, you know, closed away. Woke up, didn't know what the hell was going on. My sister's still in line. Went over to my sister. Hey, Audrey. Um, the you know, phone call I had before the podcast, even one thing to the show, I never mentioned, I refer to my sister as my sister. So now I'm going to start saying her name. Um, Audrey was like... Uh, thought I was playing because I was hanging onto her arm. So she elbowed me and knocked me out again. <laughs> yeah. And so killed a few more cells, as, as science reveals. And so I finally make it back to the car. You know, she thinks I was – I think she might have took me back. I don't remember what happened from that point on. I'm in the hospital. 
full-on concussion. But from that point on, I was in the hospital a long time, not 24 hours, but a lot of monitoring. Mm -hmm. That um, concussion or concussions, when I would do cartwheels or any kind of tumbling, I would see stars from that point on. Mm. Is that a sign of damage? Um, I never used to see stars. I used to do back handsprings and everything. Yeah. So with adolescents, they are probably the best group of people to experience a brain injury because their brain is formed enough. And I got this from one of my OG favorite supervisors I ever had. I work with this lady. Her name is Serena Hoover. Mm -hmm. um, brilliant person. Um, she always says with adolescents, their brain is formed enough that it's not, you know, completely, I don't know how to say it. Um, their brain is formed enough that there is at least end roads laid down. They have some organization, um, but at the same time, they're not so formed that damage will really mess them up. There is okay. some amount of plasticity. That's how yeah. the brain can reorganize in such a way that it will be able to compensate for any damage. Yeah. Um, so I landed on my head a whole lot of times as a kid. I was I was really <laughs> hyperactive. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I would. You're so calm now, dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meditation. It helps. Really? Yes. Oh, okay. I meditated uh, twice today, at least. Wow. Um, so with your brain injury that you probably experienced, you probably recovered pretty well from it, um, from everything I'm hearing. Uh, it probably won't last, cause lasting issues. And, you know, like these things happen all the time to folks. Like I've had multiple brain injuries and I'm okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I kind of forgot what your question was. No, my question was, I was just wondering the fact that, like, it probably went on for maybe a year or two. Oh, yes, your dizziness. Thank you for Oh, the stars. Mm -hmm. The solar system would come out when I would do rolls on the ground. So you got to think about brain injury as not only affecting the brain, but common time, like, it's very common, and oftentimes you have people that, that develop neck disorder because the muscles, you know, mm -hmm. some kind of whiplash that happens oftentimes. Like, you landed on, the, on your back. Yeah, hit so your the head back of my whipped head. backwards. So you could have some neck injuries, whether it be orthopedic or be in the bones, right? Muscle or orthopedic. Um, but you also have vestibular problems that develop, which is vestibular would be your eyes motor tracking. So yeah. a lot of people develop headaches and issues and they see stars a lot of times or have issues with, with um, just reading and doing things because their eye muscles are actually discoordinated. Oh, wow. So you can you can go and see there's certain people that are trained in it, usually PTs or OTs, that can actually retrain your eyes, and it helps a lot with the sequela, the things that happen after some kind of brain injury, and that is oftentimes not compensated for by insurance. So it's a lesser-known symptom that is really a big issue that vestibular problems and neck problems can contribute to all the things that happen after brain injury. So you probably okay. had some kind of, if I had to guess, right, I'm – I'm just shooting from the cuff here. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? But that that could be something that just fixed itself over time. Yeah, when I when I watch the UFC and I see some guys like get knocked out in slump, and then they come in, but they start fighting again. The ref let it go, and they get knocked out again. I'm thinking, dude, that's like it has a different meaning to me now. I'm like, that's pretty serious. But the but the other thing that I was going to mention, and I'm tell I. I'm, you hear, you've heard it first here because this is my celebrity uh, conspiracy theory okay. uh, idea, concept. You know Kanye West is, is he's different, right? He, he, he appears different. Maybe shows signs of mania sometimes, over talks like he doesn't – he's inappropriate sometimes when he's talking to people. And it's like one-way conversations. He's not aware. Social, his social awareness is off. Yeah. 
He didn't used to be that way. Mm-hmm. And people blame it on marrying Kim Kardashian. No. She's actually doing well, right? She's do- She seems more um, mentally cognizant and reasonable than him. Yeah. Here's my theory. No one ever, no one touches this, dude. And I, I, this is, this is me. I'm taking full credit for this. Not that it matters. I win nothing. But people forget that he was in a massive car accident and he actually had to have his, his skull was fractured and he had to get his jaw like, uh, wired shut. Wired shut. And he had, I think had a metal plate somewhere in his, in his cranium mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize that's a, tra- that's a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And a massive one where mm-hmm. it don't, I mean, vehicle collision, that's mm-hmm. pretty bad. Like Sam Kennison, people believe that that's what made him go from a preacher to the comedian Sam Kennison, totally different person. But Kanye West's behavior changed after that. As soon as he healed, he left, he left his girlfriend or fiance at the time. And just, you could see a deterioration of his uh, personality or change. I don't mean to use deterioration. I don't want to get sued, but changed over time. Yeah took a different direction. So as a licensed professional, I have to be careful not to publicly diagnose anyone. But oh, yeah. I can say some information that you can draw your own conclusions. I'm, a, I'm YouTube certified okay. uh, clinician. and yeah. uh, That's valid. So you got the receipts. <laughs> yeah, I got the, what you call it, view history. So when it comes to psychopathology, what causes mental disorders, right? It's always biopsychosocial is the most popular theory. So biological, deep down in your in your genes, in your blood, that's what you're, you inherit. Then you have psycho, so like what you're thinking, your thought processes, and you have social factors, the environment that we're in, people we're around, cultural factors, right? Beliefs, these mm-hmm. things that are, are shared. Um, and then everyone has their own individual attitudes that's in psycho, psycho right? So biopsychosocial factors, I want you to see potentially a brain injury as a stressor that could trigger the onset of a mental condition that you have some genetic and environmental things that influenced you. So let's say if someone has um, somebody in their family that has schizophrenia, they're much more likely to develop certain disorders like bipolar, ADHD, depression, anxiety, just because there's a um, genetic predisposition just because there's that in their genetics. Yeah. And then all you need is that, that thing to light the fuse. And then depending on stress and what's going on with that person, it can trigger uh, some kind of disorder later on. Potentially a brain injury can do that. And, you know, um, just so that, you know, it's a more emerging side of research, but bipolar which is that mania and depressive kind of cycling back and forth. That's what bipolar disorder is. Mania, you have a lot of energy, flight of ideas. You um, think that you can accomplish anything, right? These. I have a friend that has it untreated. She's diagnosed untreated. I mean, some people can manage it. No, she can't manage it. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's bad. I mean, there's people that live with like a hypomania, which is like a minor mania, but you just know there's super productive people that never seem to sleep. And they maybe sometimes have some downtime. And that's bipolar 2. So that's not as severe mania. But bipolar 1, very severe mania, they usually end up having to be hospitalized, have a lot of issues. Um, but uh, She's probably in between. Okay. She's been in the hospital. So she's once you have bipolar 1, you always have it. I mean, is there is there bipolar 1, is there a spectrum where it's... She's not in the hospital all... I could tell when she's going through it. Yeah. To be honest with you, I had to take a break from our friendship because of it. 
but it's um, it kicks in. She's talking real fast. Yeah, spending all her money. Yeah, it's stereotypical things, making horrible decisions, dude. Like just the most horrific, and she doesn't have a sense of. Um, you can't reason with her. It's almost like um, I know a little bit of psycholo- psychological terms, but the, I'm, I might be using them wrong. Uh, she, depersonalization. Uh-huh. It's like she's not present in herself. Because when you talk to her, she goes like, uh huh, yeah, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Like there's no, there's no penetration. That could go on for weeks, and then I'm a loser. My childhood, like it goes to the other end. Like she, um, she, no one knows who this is. So I'm not. I mean, I so I could, I guess I could tell the story, but uh, like she tried to kill herself. Just and then when she got level, she's like, why did I try to kill myself? Yeah, you know, it, it's and then it's back to Mars. I mean, she is. And we're like, you need to get on medication. She goes, no, 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 no. I, I. It was weird when she the dip. She gets on Red Bulls. I mean, five hour energies mm-hmm. because it's even hard to have energy. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly she don't need them anymore, and she has all these business ideas. She's launching. All of a sudden, she said, "Do you know what? Um, she's in, like one time she lost um, eighty thousand dollars in the stock market like in a week because she said she saw a guy on social media talk about. It. I said, well, you should study." And she goes, no, 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 um, I'm, um, I think I got this and just took her freaking life savings or a big chunk of it and started managing it herself and just blew it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that that's definitely it. definitely could be a bipolar. I, I know you can't I'm diagnose. Not, I'm diagnosing. You know, I don't know her we're like Penn and Teller. Sounds like the, the. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're Penn and Teller with the diagnosis. You just, I'll say it. You know, yeah. I'll have one talks about yeah. that. Penn and Teller. I love yeah. They had a great show back in the day called Full Shit. Um, oh, yeah. That's not on anymore? Uh, I don't know. I think it's still... No, no, no. They don't have... They have a new one. Fool Us. Have you seen that one? It's like magic tricks. Yeah. 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 So I'm a big skeptic, and that's a big issue when it comes to having conversations with anyone. Um, but I'm just an empiricist, and that show just spoke to the little me when I was a little kid, and that's what also influenced me to go to psychology, right? Scientific thinking. But wait, which show? Uh, bullshit. Okay, yeah, yeah. With Penn and yes, I love those guys. Yeah, they would break stuff down, dude. Um, so pertinent tangent, I hope. Um, when it comes to psychopathology and the causes of it, a brain injury can definitely be one. And with your your friend, like we have diagnoses we use, and I could go into all kinds of philosophical arguments as why there's a lot of issues with diagnoses, mm-hmm. and oftentimes the world is messy, and no one just fits into one particular diagnosis oftentimes and it'll fluctuate throughout life um so when i say that you know someone will have bipolar one they'll always have it as far as diagnosis goes all you need is one episode manic episode as long as it's not caused by like a a substance or a medical condition once you have one authentic manic episode you will always fit the category of bipolar one so she's ever had that that would potentially be the diagnosis that another psychologist could potentially give. Yeah, I think she's pretty bad. Like what they did was when she got institutionalized, oh, she'd been institutionalized twice. Mm. The first time they put her on lithium. Mm-hmm. And some other, did they do that to bipolar? It's a great drug. But it has a lot of uh, problems with concentration. You got to really be monitoring your blood when you're on it. It works great for mood regulation. I mean, it also causes some erectile dysfunction sometimes in men and, and cause other symptoms. But... Um, it is one of the best ways to prevent those really severe mood swings yeah. because it's not just up, but it's also down. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's other medications like carbamazepine, which is also very good. Um, 
So a mood stabilizing medication is helpful, but also you can do things um, psychosocially. So working with families so that they know how to reduce stress and express themselves so that it doesn't trigger more manic episodes, but also working with their circadian rhythms. So if you make sure somebody that has a propensity for mania, if they are really good about managing their sleep, mm-hmm. um, then it really helps. There's a musician that I really like named Brandon Chipetta, Chipetti. He is the main singer of Bleeding Through, and he's able to manage his um, bi- uh, bipolar through exercise and good sleep and probably medication, but I don't know. Yeah, she needs to do that. Like one thing I, I know that she has, there's certain times of the year where it kicks in, you know. Um, I don't know if it, it's like maybe there's a seasonal component, but there is an overlap of um, uh, OCD. Or it's like a it's like a OCD with anxiety. Like she's scared to check her mail during certain phases of that mania depression cycle. She won't check her mail, and it, and it can definitely happen. <laughs> it's just we're laying everyone's secrets out there. Um, it's it can yeah happen. yeah. No very one knows who she is. is no it? one knows she. She's not very social, so no one. Well, no one. She doesn't. No one knows. I mean, if she listens, she'll know it's her. But she knows that no, no one knows this stuff. I know because I wrote it out with her. I actually went to visit her in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and these are things that uh, made me uh, being, you know, uh, super empath. I guess where I just want to help and be your friend no matter what. But it just got. It's just. It's gone too far. Where I have to have ba- personal boundaries. When someone is really, uh, really clinically depressed. That is a really difficult syndrome to deal with. Um, and then also when somebody is really dealing with even hypomania, um, it is very difficult to manage without medications or a lot of intervention. Um, there's some you know, people that really struggle with it and there's people that are able to manage it, but usually it takes a lot of learning and experimentation and figuring out what works best for them in their life. And they'll always need to do some amount of adapting because you may have a program that works great Mm-hmm. And then something will come up in life and then you got to adjust it. And that's yeah. why, like, it's really great to have a therapist, a psychologist, you know, that is there for you that can really help be in your quarter and troubleshoot some of these things as they come up. Yeah. But that's, I'm biased and I'm, you know, that's my sales pitch. That's why I'm yeah. working in the industry, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, I I, under, I get it, man. Um, yeah. No, I think it's not, a, I mean, I know you're joking, but it's, it's definitely not a sales pitch. I mean, you're, you're kicking facts. Um yeah, but her, my boundaries had to do with her mania phases. Those are just very, very hard. The depression part, she comes ultra religious, you know, and then the, the mania is like, and I know you're probably like, yeah, but the mania, it's just, it's too far. And I was like, hey, I need boundaries. And um, she even has problems keeping friends. So that's why I know a lot of people don't know this because I was her only friend. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, but so the getting, I want to jump on this topic because my podcasts tend to run long, and um, I want to d- dive deep into this one, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, um, I'd like to talk about trauma, mm-hmm. psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations in my personal life with people because I have, man, I don't even know. No joke. I don't even know if this is common. I probably have about five friends that are close to me that are experiencing um, issues as an adult from traumas from, well, no, let's say, let's say four, I'm sorry, I have to be technical. Yeah. There's three experiencing uh, problems from traumas as a child and they're all 40 or 50 
in their age. And one of them is just experiencing trauma in general from a, um, being treated by someone in her life. And, um, uh, I've talked, you know, because I've been through traumas and I've learned a lot, you know, um, about not, not that I'm an expert and that's why I bring people like yourself on, but I've, I've been through, I guess the fire of like kind of the, I would say the worst traumas, like the worst where all the traumas come out all at the same time, you know, it's like that aim of that movie. I've never seen it, but it's called everything all at once. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of trauma I felt that I hit. The, um, from what I understand, I have, uh, um, uh, complex trauma with PTSD and from understand that's not the best <laughs> form of trauma to have because there's just there's it's a it's a salad of traumas you know you got your tomato traumas you got your it's just a mixture but my friends that are talking about like one of them well two of them are experiencing and I'm getting ahead but I'll bring it back but they've experienced some massive changes as they're coming out of the let's say the depths of the trauma, the impact. One of them, she's kind of cheating, I think. She went to um, Mexico and uh, smoked some frog poison. That's cool. Have you heard of that? I have. Yeah, Bopa or Boja. Yeah, she had a, do- oh, the, the guy, the doctors, you know, whatever. Shaman? Shaman, yes, mm-hmm. yes, shaman. And uh, I was actually, it was done two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she, I was asking her, like, how was it? I waited a while because I guess you're still processing for, like, a while after. And she's like, oh, my gosh. It's... And because she tried other things like uh, mushrooms, natural medicine stuff. Mm-hmm. And she asked me about it. I go, do you know what? I don't know. I know that psilocybin, I think, is the active ingredient in mushrooms. Yes. Those, I, I invest, in, I'm invested uh, stock-wise in companies that have had, like, they're at the final stages of FDA approval for using Same. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people look at that and go, man, that's, that's you know, the devil's, you know, <laughs> the Diablo's plant or the devil. Mm-hmm. No, it's if it's medicines are usually from the earth, right? But it didn't really knock out the trauma. And so she went to the, did the frog. That appears to gave her give her this massive, she said her ego melted away, and she just went to another place. And she has all this insight, and she realized that, Instead of just saying, I need to love myself more, she truly understood what um, that means to love herself more. And she goes, when her ego, because you don't realize, she didn't realize how much uh, of a um, static, for lack of a better term, or a wall, our egos put up. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, um, what's that called? Like, um, like you were, like you're like a, a safety mechanism that kicks in, you know, like if you're window washing defense and the thing mechanism. breaks or a defense mechanism. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a defense mechanism that kicks in. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to do something for your own good, that thing's kicking in like, no, we can't go behind here because you're not ready or you can't handle the truth. So she did that. The other one, she's kind of coming through on her own, you know, kind of, uh, had a renewed sense of her relationship with God. And, um, but one thing that's coming to both of them is like, they feel like they gained some knowledge, you know, one was do the, do the frog stuff. Mm-hmm. The other one, nothing just right. You know, as Adele says, mm-hmm. rolling through the deep, mm-hmm. she rolled through the deep and it's coming out. She goes, she actually called me because Kenny, I didn't go through what you went through is bad, but I get now while you're doing the podcast, people need to know, you know, cause you soul search and you look inward. If you're, 
trying to heal a healthy way. And that's what they have done and they've reached this place. But I, I was wanting to maybe with you kind of walk through the process of trauma mm -hmm. and um, I guess um, I think the term, if I know it correctly, is post-traumatic. Oh, wait, hold on. Post-traumatic growth? Is what I wanted to talk about, yeah. Yes, I okay. I introduce the idea. But before we go anywhere, yeah, I would always say the caveat, don't go experimenting on mushrooms. Oh, yeah. It's medicine. <laughs> yes, don't. Like, um, there are things that are in cultures mm -hmm. like peyote. It's designed for insight. It's a traditional practice, right? And you can have some extraordinary experiences. And they have found burgeoning evidence that these things can really help with certain issues that people have. But we got to be careful about the dosing, what type of medicine that you're taking or what type of substance you're taking, and also the setting. There's there's so much. Where like, it came from? Psychedelic psychotherapy is an emerging field. It's very exciting. I think it's an incredible development. But you also need to know that there are certain symptoms in trauma and there are certain medicines that might be more conducive to helping it. And we can go into it as much as you would like. But oh, let's it's like, go. Um, so for example, it's very common in PTSD and the symptoms of PTSD. First of all, you have some kind of traumatic experience. What I define traumatic as is a whole can of worms, right? Um, usually it's um, witnessing, being a party to, knowing someone, or experiencing a near-death experience, right? Some kind of really threatening experience. That's what the classical definition of trauma On me, is. can you put a check mark on all of them? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, but it doesn't minimize that people have seriously messed up things that happen in their life that are not necessarily life-threatening. Like, you know, they're one of the most potent um, traumas a person can feel is sexual assault. And it may not necessarily mean that you're being, your life is threatened, but it's like one of the worst things you could possibly do to someone. But the only other really biggest kind of contributor to trauma is like being involved in combat. Those are like the most potent things that people experience that causes PTSD. And I can go into what PTSD is in a second. Uh, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, suffice it to say that with you know, certain medications, it treats certain symptoms. A common symptom of PTSD is going to be negative affect avoidance. You're going to have hypervigilance. You're going to have just like constantly checking your environment. You're going to have um, irritability. You're going to have increased impulsivity, you know, among a lot of changes to your personal beliefs, beliefs about yourself, other people in the world. And what they found is because people that are chronically experiencing trauma symptoms, um, they actually do better with certain medications than others. And I'm not an expert in these type of medications, but to my knowledge, things like MDMA allows them to start feeling more positive emotions, where when they've had chronic negative emotions, it can help with that. And then also, you know, when you're dealing with just the distortions that you develop as far as that's what I do in talk therapy is addressing these cognitive distortions that are really at the root of what causes a chronic PTSD. To my understanding, I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist, which is a very particular type compared to psychodynamic psychologist. I didn't even know there was, I thought it was just There's different theories as far as what causes the psychopathology. So Freud felt it was unconscious conflict between the id, which is the basic childlike self that we want automatic pleasure and satisfaction and things. And then we have the superego, which is our ideal self that holds all our judgments and ideals and 
who we think we should be in the world. And then you have the ego is this little kind of mechanism in between the id that seeks automatic pleasure, but also in a way that won't get us in trouble with laws or the government or so on. So that's psychodynamic. And it, and if there's conflict between all those mechanisms, then you have psychopathology. Usually it's an anxiety that comes out, right? So there's also how you develop that contributes to the psychopathology. So Freud thought that if you had issues during toilet training, you could become anal retentive, right? Right, And that's when you develop symptoms like OCD is mm. when you have issues with your retaining your bowels as a child mm. that led to what he believed uh, OCD later in life. So that's psychodynamic psychotherapy. Obviously wow. they've done additional work and they've <laughs> updated it. And it's not just what Freud thought. That's a traditionally psychoanalysts are like what, what Freud does. And there's still people that do that stuff. I have friends that do it. That's what you're into. They're great psychologists, but they just have a different approach. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral psychologists focus on how thoughts influence your behaviors and also your emotions. Um, and then also how those things feed back and fe inter interfere and affect one another. So, you know, what you do, how you feel, and what you think are all very important. If we can change any one of those things, you're going to change how you are in the world. My EMDR, the doctor that treated me with EMDR, that second one there, that mm -hmm. I guess what you do, mm -hmm. she's that route. That um, Cognitive behavioral. Yeah, yeah, because that is the most empirically supported uh, not that psychodynamic or acceptance commitment psychotherapists are any less. It's just there there is not as much research behind them. But I think the treatment that you like, the treatment you're willing to do is the best treatment. Yeah. You know, even if like EMDR has a lot in common with um, prolonged exposure, which I'm very familiar with, which is basically where um, you go through your trauma narrative multiple times until you develop, you know, to, to put it more in lay terms, you develop a tolerance so it doesn't cause you the same feelings anymore. Yeah. And EMDR kind of correlates the eye movements to certain um, effects that it has on your memory of the trauma. But it's all, a lot of it is this idea of whenever you have a trauma, you are conditioning yourself to avoid that in the future. It's this kind of functional idea that if you have a near-death experience, let's say I walk outside, I get struck by lightning. Right. So I'll automatically associate anything that was in my environment with potentially a life threatening situation. So if it's raining, I'm not going to go outside because I'm going to assume that I'm going to get struck by lightning again. Right. And that short term, you develop this thing called avoidance. Right. You yeah. know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but avoidance works in the short term. It means I'm never going to go outside when it's raining, but it really takes away from my life. Maybe that means that I never want to go outside because I'm always afraid that there could be lightning. You're, you're following yes. me? So long-term, to overcome that trauma, there has to be some amount of confrontation. And then you have to, basically, the avoidance maintains your symptoms. You have to confront the trauma that you've experienced, what you think about it, and also the emotions that are there. And a lot of what uh, I've done in therapy and what other psychologists do is just, first of all, give you psychoeducation about what is trauma, what are the symptoms, what are the emotions involved. Because if you start recognizing, like, oh, Every time it rains, I start to get really nervous and I start to get scared or I get become hypervigilant or I start feeling depressed all the time. You know, you're going to start having that level insight and, and, and then you realize that it's, it's all normal. It's all part of this syndrome that you're experiencing. And then you can start doing things to make yourself better. And then that's when you start confronting it, hopefully in talk therapy, EMDR. And over time, that can relieve symptoms and potentially maybe move you to the normative range.
Yeah, EMDR, I can't say enough about it. It worked very fast. Mm -hmm. You know, for each incident, mm -hmm. after the session, it was like quick. Yeah. And I didn't have to, um, I mean, the upside is that I didn't have to revisit it. But the downside is that I had to ride through it like in granular detail. So that was that was very hard. Like I remember, there's points where I was like dry heaving. Yeah, you know, it was it was very intense. Yeah, and and the more that you dig in, the more that it opens your perceptions of what that experience is. And then by digging in, by going through it, you can actually every time we touch a memory, whether you believe it or not, we actually change it in our brain. Right, a memory is just a bunch of neurons that are wired together, and every time we touch it, we are somehow affecting it. And when you're doing a talk therapy you are touching that memory of the thing and you're somehow changing it. And what I've worked a lot on people that have had um, like combat trauma or whatever trauma, they usually fixate on one particular piece of the memory and they are not fully aware of everything. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's very common in combat that people have had to make difficult decisions on the drop of, you know, hat, just on instant, they have to make a difficult decision and they feel very guilty about the decision they made. They said, you know, if only I would have known, right? That's a common sense. Why, why not me? Why did he die? If I could have only have known, right? That's a hindsight bias. That's a type of thinking where you're thinking after the fact, I know how that could have gone instead, but you have the benefit of hindsight. How could you have possibly have known about that thing at that time is like a, a subtle challenge that I'll give to some of my clients. And it helps take maybe some of that burden, that guilt away from them because you have to understand that that thinking process is what is maintaining their symptoms, their symptoms of guilt, depression, anger. So they're kind of like holding it in place for in there in mm -hmm. head. Mm -hmm. And then when we touch that memory, we can start changing the way we think about it. You know, it's very common for people that have experienced uh, sexual assaults. They feel personally guilty. They're like, I wish I would have fought more, right? It's a common thing that they'll say. But if you ask them, like, did you try your best? Did you fight back? Did you scream? Did you yell? Did you kick? Yeah, I tried all those things, you know, well, regardless of what, I don't mean to minimize anyone's trauma. No, yeah. Or, di or did the guy have a gun? I mean, yeah. you're not going to fight. Than you? Yeah. We're, we're assuming it's a guy, but there's also a lot of yeah. sexual assault amongst other folks too. Yes. 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 Um, so I'm just saying like, you know, they don't think about all the other things and it just takes touching the memory, which is extremely uncomfortable. Extremely oh, pain. yeah. Oh, but yeah. By touching the memory, we can open up and change that memory hopefully give them some relief and ultimately the most important part of post-traumatic growth as we've talked about ptsd and i can flesh out anything else you would like but post-traumatic growth is this idea that even though you go through a trauma you come back hopefully in some ways better now everyone is a multi-factorial thing we have so many facets to who we are right and this idea of resilience is very similar in some ways to what post-traumatic growth is have you heard of resilience well, I, I mean, I know what the word like means like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, he's very resilient, but mm -hmm. they're, they're, you probably are, have a deeper meaning, I'm guessing, or is... it's, as it sounds like you can deal with something, but you can kind of stay at baseline, right? That's like being resilient. Yes. Up until my situation, um, the most recent, the recent one, mm -hmm. I considered myself resilient and everyone told me I was resilient. And then, um, you know. Someone pulled yeah. the resilient rug out from under me. Yeah. And, and you know, it goes back to the, the Joker saying, what doesn't kill us makes us stranger, right? Yeah. So uh, with post-traumatic growth, we have um, this idea that 
you ideally will be coming back even better than who you were. Right? Yes. Uh, and it could be in different domains, but it, you could say there's the more skeptical side of me that says it could just be a mental technique that we're using to make ourselves feel better. The fact that I'm better because of it is kind of seeing the silver lining. It's digging for benefits yeah. because it really hurts the heart to think that you just went through something terrible and that nothing good came of it. Or we're genuinely motivated by feeling terrible. And I, I can tell you like one of the biggest motivating factors in anyone is that there's a discrepancy between who you are and really who you want to be because either like it's like with attitude change, right? If you have an attitude and your behaviors are not in line with your, your, your attitude, either you change the attitude or you change your behavior. And what we do a lot of times in psychotherapy is just presenting these inconsistencies to someone say, you know, Oh, you really want to do this with your life or do these things, but it just seems like you're kind of stuck as it is because of depression, because of whatever, how can we make your behaviors more consistent with your attitudes? Right. And, uh, when it comes to post-traumatic growth, I think when you've dealt with hitting the very worst position you've probably ever, ever been in, right? Or again, feeling terrible, you want to get out of it. So that's a very um, intense motivating factor for a lot of people. And they try to come back in, in a lot of ways that they, they find beneficial because maybe their values change. You know, maybe they motivated themselves, done more things for themselves than they weren't able to before that hitting bottom. You know what I'm saying? Pain is a motivator. It's mm -hmm. definitely a motor, physical or psychological. Mm -hmm. It will, um, it will, yeah, it's a motivator. I don't even know what I was going to say with that, but it's, yeah. I've noticed a lot of the big um, things that have happened. You know, like say if someone gets injured, even physically injured, like they'll quit. Like say if they were a cliff jumper, like those divers, if someone gets real hurt, I could see someone going, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, like that hurt too much too when you miss or when I got injured, so I'm not. And for me, with, when going through uh, trauma and experience post-traumatic growth, cause I didn't know what it was called. I just had, I just felt started feeling good, had more epiphanies. I'm, I'm, um, for the lack of a better term, I'm scared to to go back to where I was. Like I have a a genuine fear. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's. It forces like it. It that's my motivator. Just the, it's, it's it's horror. It's terrible. Are you afraid it's gonna happen again? I was. Yes, I'm not gonna lie. I was. <laughs> I would too. Yeah. You know, everyone that experiences trauma is ultimately afraid of that, and that causes so many issues because we're trying to avoid that thing that causes pain. Naturally, we want to avoid it. Yeah. Well, thank God. Well, I, well, here's the crazy part. Um, after I went through, um, I think I did about. It's a lot. Like, um, I think I did about 40 hours of EMDR, you know. I was doing, yeah, in a short period of time. I was doing three to four hour blocks every three days for, for months, for maybe like two and a half, three months, and she kind of dialed it down. That's not easy. Oh, dude, it was like, you know what's weird about EMDR is that, or this therapy, because it was working so well with me, and she explained that the reason why it works so well is that um, I was very, very opened. She goes, that some people, they still hold back. She said, I came in and just spilled myself, like poured myself out in front of her. Mm -hmm. And so she went through it and she was saying like, uh, so I was going through those those things, but I had ended up telling her that um, 
I can't remember how the conversation came up, but I told her, even though this is horrible, it's like the, it's the worst thing I've ever done. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I've been just to compare, I've been through a, uh, I was married for 14 years and my wife had an affair. I had to end the marriage. Devastating. My son has attempted suicide multiple times. I've had, uh, it's, it's a long story, but it's kind of tied into the divorce. And then, um, like you're talking about violence or combat. I feel like I've been in combat. She's my, it feels like the therapist that I talked to, cause there's actually two, there's EMDR and there's another one who would do the follow up deprogramming, um, yeah. stuff or what do you call it? Debrief or whatever it's called. Yeah. And, um, I've been shot at so many times. My car has been shot up. My sister and I were just talking about it the other day. She goes, man, I remember that time you came and your car like had a bullet hole through the front and this and that. I was driving on the freeway. These people, these people are trying to shoot us, but California. Yeah. And road rage. No, it wasn't, it wasn't road rage. It was, well, I guess it would qualify, but it was, there's history behind the, the whole incident, but all those things plus more did not compare to what I had to go through with the MDR. And I told her, this is the worst thing I've ever faced. But at the same time, I'm looking forward to coming here because it's when you go through the sessions, cause normally EMDR is supposed to be like 90 minutes, I think, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing blocks. And so she even explained to me how long the sessions were, but then she saw me and looked at my thing. She goes, what are you doing this Sunday? Cause I was on a Friday, you know, she's closed on Sunday. You know, usually I don't know. I don't think she works on weekends. She's like, come in. I'm, I'm going to, we got to do something about this. And so the, during the four hour blocks, when we were going through the, the sessions, like say I'm a makeup, well, I'll use a real incident. Um, I'll use a light one. Cause at the end she was clearly cleaning up the, um, the um, loose ends, true story. So this will tie into a, there. Was, when I was a kid, I had a babysitter that was real rough. I didn't know it affected me, how bad it affected me. I used to think like, I used to ask my sister and my mother, how long did you guys send me to this woman, man? She was mean. And they go, what'd she do to you? I go, I don't remember. I just remember her being mean. I have no memory of it. Yeah. And um, they're like, you're only there for like four days. We switched because you were like screaming, like horrified to go to her house. I go, dude, it seems so long. So fast forward. I was probably, I was even old enough for, for I was in preschool age. What is that, four? About five usually. About five. School, yeah. yeah. Right, no, four is preschool. One, first grade is five. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Four? Four. I was four years old. I remember this woman, right? Fast forward. I was like 40, maybe 41 years old. My sister lives in Northern California. She goes, that's where I lived before we moved to uh, Italy. And they're like, hey, Let's go to the old neighborhood. And when we started driving there, this woman lived across the street. My hands started sweating. I started having an anxiety attack at 41 years the old. The body knew. Yes. The body remembered. The body remembered, dude. Mm-hmm. Or I think there's a book. I've never read it, but it's called The Body Keeps Score. Mm-hmm. Um, it kicked in. My sister goes, oh, we couldn't go to the house. She had to turn around. And, and my sister goes, wow, man, what did she do to you? I go, I have no idea. So we EMDR'd that, right? And... The, the reaction's still there. So this is the cool thing about EMDR, which I did a lot of things that were a million times worse in treatment, like more painful, but it's like you go through the depths of it and then you punch through and you actually feel good at the end of the session. And I was looking forward to it. It's almost like a real good workout. You know, like when you have a real good training session, I'm like, man, I felt, you, I felt even more present in my body than the days that follow. It's like, like a, like a, jigsaw puzzle coming together in a healthy way yeah. things are starting to piece together yeah i mean uh i had a 
babysitter that soon after I, I stopped going to her, she was she was adopted. She got uh, arrested for abducting children. And my parents were always like, I'm glad that wasn't you. So like there's these people out there and, you know, children do experience neglect and all kinds of abuse, but there's also some great daycares out there. So I feel your vibes on that one. Yeah. Um, I remember she had such a mean dog. It would always try to bite. Um, so with your body keeping score, you have different ways of learning and there is classical conditioning and operant conditioning, which I'm sure you've heard of. Classical conditioning is this idea of basically processes that you don't have control over, like salivation, your heart rate, your sweating, right? You learn those through associating certain stimulus, mm -hmm. and then you have a physical reaction, right? The classic research was Pavlov with his dogs. Oh, yeah. He'd ring yeah. the bell, they'd start salivating, but it was through presenting the bell sound every time he fed them. And over time, just the bell was enough to initiate just the salivation. Mm -hmm. If you've had such a terrible experience with this babysitter, you can have that automatic physiological rea reaction when you are just in that environment, when there's stimulus that triggers that physiological response, right? And yeah. you may not even have the cognitive awareness. It can just trigger it. And you see that a lot of times with trauma. You know, some people will hear a noise that is just similar enough, like when they hear a book close really loudly or when they hear a door slam, it might be enough like a, a shot fired yeah. from a gun and it may cause them to be triggered and start thinking about the event. You have those intrusive thoughts that happens a lot of time with trauma. Operant conditioning is this idea where you apply a punishment or a reward, right? So like if, if I give you a cookie every time you do something, it increases the frequency of the behavior. It's um, reinforcing it. If I punish you every time you do something like put you in timeout, you know, or my parents would always, you know, my mom was a saint, but my father my father would spank, right? <laughs> Everyone's dad spanked. I did not do the bad thing because I got spanked. It would decrease the frequency of behavior. Yeah. So with trauma, basically what we're doing in therapy, whether it's EMDR, prolonged exposure, CBT, or, you know, there's CBT for uh, PTSD, all these traumas, you have to confront these physical, emotional, and psychological things so that you develop a new learning experience so that you no longer have that association between the stimulus and that panic response. This is a fight or flight response, basically. Yeah. So we have to, you know, get the person to do things. So um, if let's say a person had a really bad car accident and they developed uh, trauma symptoms after the car accident, ultimately for them to overcome the trauma, they have to get back in a car and they got to drive because they're going to always have that physiological arousal every time they get into a car. And the only way is you have to teach the body to calm down in that environment. And, you know, it, it's just, it goes back to that idea of avoidance and confrontation. Avoidance will maintain the symptoms, but if you confront it through talk therapy, through ideally going out in the environment and getting back on that horse, you can learn how to overcome it. But during that process of overcoming it, you know, you have to engage in some kind of self-regulation. And I work a lot with my, um, the people that I work with, uh, you know, breathing exercises, meditation, relaxation exercises, these things can all really help regulate so you don't feel overwhelmed while you're confronting this really uncomfortable stimulus. Yeah. And you probably have developed your own self-care practice. Yes. Yes. I do do breathing. I've become more spiritual. I pray a lot, which is very similar to meditation. Yeah. Um, what about like diet? Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't drink, I don't, no caffeine. Um, huh? Teach me. I love I don't drink caffeine, coffee. Um, no tea? Nothing? Nothing. 
Yeah, because it, it'll stimulate me too much. Okay. You know, I talk a lot already, dude. This it just multiply the. Ex- You're vigorous. <laughs> is that what it is? Vigorous. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Vigorous. I mean, and the thing is, I'm so I'm aware of that. I talk a lot. Yeah. And I so when I tried coffee for one one time in my life, dude. I took a shower, cleaned everything. I feel like I was on drugs and I was talking a lot and I was like, I can't live in this world. I'm already amped. But going back to you saying like the fear of going back to it, Mm -hmm. this checked out. This is what truly happened. After going through, it might have been two and a half, three months of just EMDR. EMDR, uh, we'll call it SEAL Team 6 training of EMDR. I went went, camp. Yeah, boot camp. I went through it and she goes, you need to take a month break at least. You know, and she goes, I'm going to um, try to find a way because it's it's EMDR. I didn't have the insurance to take it, you know, and I mean to to uh, do it. So it's it's a long story. I won't go into the financial part, but yeah. um, my insurance didn't cover it. So I was like, let me take a month off. But I guess my insurance covered the other therapist who does the debrief. And so I told that therapist that what the EMDR therapist said. And, um, and no knock against her, the, um, I'm saying the regular, I'll call her the regular therapist as opposed to the doctor. She's just a MF. She's a MF marriage family therapist. I don't know how to say that. MF MFT MFT. She's a marriage family therapist. Very good ones out there. I've dealt with them in the past. Very good. And up to this point, she and I just vibed. Everything was cool. She took, she took issue with the therapist saying I need a month off. Month off. She goes, you need, this is in the first session. She goes, you need to be, I mean, the first session after the end of EMDR, even though she was kind of with me through it, she goes, you need to be pushed. And I was like, and you got like, this is me. Cause I was, when I go to therapy, I put my guard down, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, if they told me like, listen, you need to rub your hands like this and, um, think about it. like, I'm like, does that help? Okay. I'll try it. Right. Yeah. So she's like, you need to be pushed. And I go, what do you mean be pushed? She goes, will you? You know, you need to face your, your, you know, whatever, this and that. And she began to push me in the session. And I didn't, like, um, stand up for myself. You know, like, hey, no, I, I think it's too much right now. I eventually did. I mean, I didn't initially, but I say the, the, the session's 45 minutes. She cranked into me for about 40 minutes. I go, do you know what? This like, I broke down, dude. Like, she dug it out. Mm-hmm. And then she sent me out the door and said, see you next week. I went out the door completely dysregulated. And so I called her, I called her office and they're like, and they told her, and she goes, Oh, come back, come back, come back. And she's like, well, here's some breathing exercises. And I was like, I already do these breathing exercises. I, you, you know, this and that. And she didn't know how to put it back in the box, you know, to get long, long story short. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of that, or about a, you know, a few days later, I'd have called the EMDR. I could listen, I can't, I need to come in. And that's when the horror of, oh, this is going to come back. I'm going to go back to hell, you know, which is the beginning of EMDR. I started having anxiety. I started having, um, I even had symptoms I never had, you know, like my hands going numb and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so she brought me in and she cleaned it out with EMDR, hooked me up. And she goes, uh, um, don't worry. You've dealt with the worst of your life. There's no way you can go back to that because you've treated it. So you're good. Now you might have bumps in the road and that's what we're here for. And it's eventually gonna get better, but there's no way you're going back to that. And she like reassured me and I was like, all right, cool. And I trust her. And, uh, um, 
And you know what? I actually I wanted to. Pl- I can't remember the name of her. I think it's OC Solutions is the place. Her name is Doctor Vived Gonzalez. She's amazing. And I said I'm gonna tell people about you. So it's Doctor Vived Gonzalez. I think she's in um, San Juan Capistrano. She's in Orange County, South Orange County. You might be. I don't know exactly the city because she's on the border of San Juan Capistrano mm-hmm. and um, and uh, Rancho Mission Viejo. So I went home and I got to process everything with a clear mind. I go, do you know what? So I actually wrote an email to the therapist that that dysregulated me, and I told her, I said, look, I'm fortunate that I have resources that could pay for um, EMDR and these other things. Some people don't, and I'm not a ther- I'm not a psychologist, but to I, as you know, I spent the last three months digging up the biggest demons in my life, and. And, and the other doctor wanted to, uh, uh, for me to take a breather and or take a break to just process it because it takes time. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why you felt the need to, to keep pushing me and keep pushing me when you didn't have a way to um, to fix if something went sideways. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I told her, I said this, and I said, you know how far I went when I was at my lowest. Like I was to the point of not wanting to live. Could you imagine if I didn't have the resources of the EMDR doctor and stuff, I said, that could have been bad, a bad ending for somebody. And I told her, told her straight up and I let her go. I mean, I said, hey, I, I don't want to, whatever. She never responded. I don't think she would because maybe it's a potential lawsuit or whatever. I mean, it's not. I wouldn't sue her, but she's probably worried about legal stuff. But here's the interesting thing, too, about this. She also took issue when, the, when, I, said, when I said this, to so take it back to when I went into the therapy appointment. She took issue with... Um, not just what the doctor said. She goes, what's her name? I'm going to call her. Like she wanted to confront the damn uh, EMDR doctor. And I go, here, take it, here. She goes, I disagree with that. You need to be pushed. And I was thinking like, what the hell? So um, she had a strong opinion about it for sure. Yeah. So just <laughs> as far as emails, um, it's really not a good way to communicate with a therapist because there's not a lot of confidentiality around it unless it's encrypted, you know, and if it's Gmail, like I would be putting private health information, patient health information, uh, HIPAA stuff basically in an email. I could get in big trouble if I ever emailed a patient, especially Mm. if it's details of care. Well, she's emailed me before. Okay. I mean, if it's like basic care coordination and you accept it and you say, okay, yeah, that's, okay because yeah, you yeah. have the privilege right yeah. you get you get the the ability to disclose whatever you would like but yes. i have to hold the confidentiality of my patients very seriously right yes uh, so as long as you consent to it but i would just say that's not a conversation that that goes well by email regardless um i think if we look at the overall picture when you do any kind of exposure and basically emdr and prolonged exposure have a lot in common um it is common that there is a certain dose that you need and it's usually about 30 minutes to 45 minutes before people experience what is like initial physiological reaction, emotions are evoked. And then after let's say 20, 30 minutes, you have kind of more of the debrief and resolution phase. Yes. And then you get so uncomfortable during that rehearsal where you're going over and over and over it (laughs) that when you just go back to normal, you feel really good because you were so uncomfortable. It's like eating a hot chili pepper. You know, if you eat a Carolina Reaper, you're so uncomfortable that just by being normal, you feel kind of high. You're just like, oh, wow. Yes. So there's that natural physiological curve. Um, And with EMDR, 
I don't know a lot of details about the processing, but like I was talking about, a lot of the issues with PTSD is how it changes your thoughts about yourself, others in the world. Yes. You know, it's like if someone experiences a sexual assault, they might see certain groups of people as being all bad, right? So um, female sexual assault, uh, people that have experienced that, you know, I don't like to say the word survivor because it has a whole different connotation to it. So I just say person that has experienced this, Mm -hmm. you know, the person first language I think is better. Um, They may see all men as bad because they had that one experience. But really the sticking point there is it makes them makes it really difficult for them to deal with men, which we all have to deal with men. Yes. You know, that's part of life. Everyone has to deal with the opposite sex. Um, so they have to learn to overcome that sticking point, which is called a stuck point. So yeah. that debrief that you were experiencing, maybe the therapist was thinking that it was to your benefit to really get into maybe some stuck points that she saw. And if you do EMDR or just pro- prolonged exposure, you don't get into the psychological aspects of trauma which other therapies like cognitive processing therapy, that's the specialty. It's really about how it's changed your feelings towards yourself, others, your understanding about what caused the traumas, the root cause of it. And, you know, what happens oftentimes people think very dichotomously, you know, and there's this thing called just world um, fallacy. Have you heard of it before? No. So it's this idea like for sexual assault, uh, people that have experienced it, um, they say, you know, Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. So if a bad thing happened to me, I must be a bad person. And that's oh, where you lead to like it. victim blaming. Yeah. So it's this idea that yeah, as a woman, if you experience a sexual assault, well, it must have been because I was asking for it. Yeah. Right? I shouldn't have gone to the nightclub by myself. I shouldn't have drank in all those drinks, whatever it is. So they blame themselves. They feel a lot of guilt rather than seeing it as just this one particular perpetrator that could have been a serial rapist committed this crime. It's not that all men are bad. It's just this one particular person being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, it was unforeseeable, that event coming up. Yeah. So it's difficult to say that some bad things happen for no reason. But that is a more pragmatic or dialectical way of seeing the situation that will allow you to integrate that experience into your lived experiences, see it as part of you, and then go into the future robustly and deal with the difficulties that will come up as part of life. You know, if you just think that all men are bad, it'd be very difficult for you to deal with life. Yeah. So that processing piece, certain therapists really push on that because they see that as the cause of their, uh, the trauma. And I have no idea, but if I was going to try to give this person the benefit of the doubt because they're an MFT and they're licensed, maybe they did it irresponsibly, but that's where they were coming from with the hopes of ameliorating some of your symptoms. But, you know, they should have maybe developed some. Go ahead. No, De- no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm develop some additional skills to help ease your distress at the end of the session. Is my guess. Yes, I left a part out. That part where she said, "Here's some breathing skills." When I went back to her, she actually apologized a few times and goes, "I'm sorry." I like, and um, then that's when she tried to give me some of the stuff, mm-hmm. the breathing skills things, but. Um, with EMDR, I know that people do it differently. Some um, do this thing called resourcing where they have like a safe place where they kind of put their stuff. The one I go to, she doesn't do that. We're going we're going deep. We're going through the wormhole with Morgan Freeman. We're yeah. going all the way in. Yeah. And um, That's but, the quickest way to reduce symptoms. Yes. And there is cognitive therapy piece to it. So there's okay. both. Okay. So once you go like one event, you go to exactly like you said, that whole thing. 
Yep. And then we talk about how I feel about myself, feel about that and mm-hmm. where I'm at. That's huge. And then she goes, um, there's actually the machine. You could put it to a thing from trauma setting to input setting. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm-mm. You hit an input setting. Actually, I have an EMDR machine in my house now. Okay. I, it's, I have it set to input. They have machines now? Or like I've a little a little mobile thing. Yeah. Because I've never been trained in it. I don't know anything about oh, it. Oh, yeah. Other than the bigger pieces. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I got my little compacto. Because people now use it for sports performance, and it's set on the input. Like, um, yeah, because you've... Okay, I'll explain that in a second. But yeah, if you just Google EMDR, sports performance. Yeah. Oh man, that's a whole nother niche. Niche. It, it's sounding a lot like biofeedback or neurofeedback. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. And so what happens is that uh, with the EMDR, to kind of put it in the nutshell, is that they're causing bilateral stimulation of the brain, right and left hemisphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so as you're going through it, it's at a rhythm that's a natural rhythm, like my brain would normally communicate at. And so I have to visualize it. That's why they want you to relive it. I'm not just talking it and keeping a blank mind. I have to visualize everything I see because that's where the healing occurs or the yes. the magic. Yes. And so when you do to the when you go to that whole thing, like you just said, that whole route, um, she talks to me how I feel about myself and stuff. And I had like no joke. Do you know, like you said, uh, good things, bad things happen to bad people. They don't happen to good people. So if something bad happened, I'm bad. Right. I had this perception that I'm bad. I'm cursed. Like all these crazy things. Mm-hmm. And I was open with her about it. I wasn't trying to front. I was yeah. like, dude, I feel cursed. Yeah. I've and this and that. And so she goes, and I'm a bad person. And so the input is it's another brain setting. Mm-hmm. And because um, she don't use the eye things. It's it's vibration to stimulate my brain into my hand. It could go onto my legs and hands. Interesting. Yeah, because she says the eyes is too distracting for me to visualize. Because they've learned now with more research that the visualization reaches into that part of the brain where it's at. And if you're following a, a finger, it's hard for you to visualize. And even the, the buzzing in the ears, you don't have to use that either. And so, um, so yeah, so what so, they'll do is they'll go, uh, for this is for the input, if there's areas like repeat, I'm like you have this machine on. And this is crazy how the brain works. You go, say I'm a bad person. Think I'm a bad person and visualize yourself as a bad person. And I started doing that. My sub, my mind, because I'm already kind of, I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, telling myself I'm a bad person. It starts going, you're a good person. You're mon- you start telling yourself this. She goes, what it does is, it's almost like a defibrillator. You know how a defibrillator works in the of hospital? Yes. Yeah, it stops the heart and the heart yeah. cranks on. Yes. Yeah. Gives it a jolt. Gives it a so jolt. So it gets it to function properly again. Yes. Yeah. So, because your, your, your body wants to live naturally. Mm-hmm. Your mind naturally wants to, your mind naturally wants to think positive of you. So if I think like, oh, um, I don't have family. That was another thing I had. Like, I don't have a big family. And it goes, well, you got, you got this friend. You got that. Like, the thoughts, the, the visuals. I'm not even thinking of their names. Their visuals, my brain starts doing anyways when it's set on that rhythm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so we would do that. And that's the input. And then we'd sit down and talk about that. And then we'd go, okay, let's go to this next bad thing. Well, at the beginning, it was bad stuff immediately. You know, like the first maybe two weeks. Mm-hmm. And a little bit. And, but there was always a cognitive fill-up piece at the end. Mm-hmm. But then the, the regular sessions, which were still long, we would talk because what happens is when you when you deal with something, this is how I explain it to people. Have you seen that movie Hurt Locker? Yeah. Yeah. This how I see this is how trauma and I've and I, I referred a friend to EMDR and he's going through it. And he says it's a good description I gave him, but I could be wrong. The guy would find a bomb. He's a bomb uh, EOD. 
explosive ordnance disposal. And he would find a bomb, say the dogs or the metal detectors find a bomb. And the guy would like tell everyone to stand back. He crawls over there in his suit. And he starts digging up the bomb. And as he digs out the bomb, he sees an, another wire. So he follows that wire and is connected to a secondary explosion. So he has to follow the wire and go there. And hook. That's how trauma seems to work where that yes. they're connected, but you don't know they're connected mm-hmm. until you dig up that main bomb mm-hmm. and then it connects. Like my dad abandoning uh, me and my sister it's connected to, um, like, my relationship, the last one. That's yeah. the main trigger. Mm-hmm. It triggered that, but they're all linked. The secondaries attra- connect. Like, it's this whole little freaking, um, like those crime movies when they have, the, like, the yarn connecting the pictures. Yeah. They're all freaking uh, connected. It's a constellation. It's a constellation. And my whole constellation popped out. But um, yeah, going back, she, when I thought I was scared of it, uh, coming back, she was even reinforced that. But I have it now. And how it works for sports is that you can literally tell you, visualize yourself. You, you could even learn things. Like say you learn a technique in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. You can go on the input and visualize yourself doing it. Uh, and it and it hardwired. It's basically if you want to tell yourself I'm a successful psychologist, right? Yeah. And you you'd visualize yourself with patients and them smiling and having these reactions. It's a, it's like a fast track equivalent of you doing self affirmations in the mirror every morning. You're a good person. It's like it shoots it right into the subconscious. So, got a side question for you. Yes. Okay. Are you a red pill or a blue pill type of person? When I say red pill, I'm not talking about politics, politics by any means. But like, Neo could take the blue pill and stay in the Matrix, or he could take the red pill and get out of the Matrix. Are you a blue or a red pill type of person? Okay. People ask me that, but there's a, okay, when you say the matrix in relation to the movie, the matrix of having knowledge of what's going on or the matrix of living in an artificial world? Uh, the knowledge like that enlightenment? you are in a simulation. And that's what pill is that? That's the, the red pill would give you the insight into the awareness of that thing. Red pill, all day. Okay. And I'm not talking about politics by any means, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. there's all kinds of political red pillars. Like I'm not one of those guys. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I like to um, know. <laughs> it, it actually has a downside so for my personality. I'm gonna, just for as the sake of a thought experiment here. Mm-hmm. So there's chiropractors that will. Don't you talk about chiropractors? So this might be one of those things where I get a lot of well, online <laughs> flack. Um, so there's chiropractors that do um, trauma adjustments. Mm-hmm. So they think the body know, keeps track. Yeah. So by cracking the body, they first have you visualize the trauma, the worst one, and then they crack the body mm-hmm. and then they process that and they say that that releases the trauma. Yeah. <laughs> you give me love. Cause I'm, I got to tell you, go ahead, go ahead. I'm, okay. I'm going to hold it. I'm listening to you. So uh, if EMDR with the bilateral stimulation and prolonged exposure, which is basically guided imagery mm-hmm. about the trauma and trauma chiropractic. I know I'm not doing it service. There's a name for it, right? Mm-hmm. If they all do the same thing and all release trauma, but they one has adjustments in chiropractic, one has eye movements, and one does not, but they all do the same thing, mm-hmm. what does that say about the active ingredient of the treatment? The active ingredient of the treatment. Um, well, it's a conditional. It's a conditional statement, though. Like okay. it's like 
if they are. Because from my experience, like I've, they give an extra background. I've done 10 years at least of cognitive therapy prior to all this. And we, I thought I've dealt with all my traumas. But I, what I've learned is that different modalities work for different people. The same way Tylenol works for your headaches, but Advil works for mine. Yeah. So I can't say, well, Advil's the best and Tylenol's crap because it worked for you. And that's what, that's what matters. That's how, that's how I see it. I could be wrong. Absolutely. That's a great Oh, point. crap. Good. I feel good about myself there. Absolutely. There you go. That's a win for me. You don't need my approval. It's just, <laughs> no, I do. I, no, I'm just kidding. I, I just ask you that because um, there's some treatments that are not beneficial uh, that have not been shown to be very helpful for people. Um, and even like one example is uh, trauma debriefing. So right after a trauma episode, if let's say someone um, was physically assaulted and they're in the ER, and you go up to them right after the, the physical assault and they're, you're in the ER, they're getting treatment, whatever, and you start talking to them about it and you try to help them walk through it, try to do the therapy, it actually is more likely to result in the development of PTSD. Oh, yeah, because you're kind of bringing it in there while they're still stimulated? Some of the explanations that I've heard is that it makes somebody more aware of their symptoms and more likely to avoid certain triggers for their symptoms where we, we all naturally have you know, some amount of review that we do like, Oh, you know, this other day, this other day I got into a fight and this happened, you know, and you start telling people about it. So it's kind of like exposure therapy when you start talking about the episode. Yeah. And that's like why most people probably don't develop PTSD when they experience these things is because there's some amount of exposure that happens. Um, but debriefing for some reason, they found that it, it is more likely to cause trauma. So that, that treatment is much less helpful but back you know years ago i'm trying to think it was in the 80s or 90s but they used to try to do like trauma debriefing thinking that it would benefit them because they know that talk therapy helps um so they just realize that it's not as helpful when you say trauma debriefing that means like within a window of the event like so um trauma like ptsd the diagnostic criteria is like after about a month if they have ongoing symptoms that's when they meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder but if they have just normal, what I would say normal trauma responses, you can have acute stress disorder, which is this other category that's within the month. And that's like more common with certain types of things. And there's a lot less people that develop PTSD than there are people that have acute stress disorder, just because there's way more people that experience trauma. And there's always gonna be a minority that do not develop, that do develop PTSD. And there's a, a vast majority that do not develop, right? Hopefully I didn't mess it up. So vast majority, <laughs> Do not develop PTSD, small minority do. And they're just saying of that group, the ones that do the trauma debriefing where you're asking about their symptoms right after the trauma. Okay, right after then, that's right the window. afterwards within, you know, several weeks. So okay. what you do usually after uh, acute trauma is you just do kind of covering strategies. How do we help them regulate, stay calm, be around people, but you don't sit there and do the cognitive therapy that you would normally do or prolonged exposure where you have them review it. It's more like, okay, how can we get you to sleep? Like self-care, sleep, usually sleeping, physical exercises you can, and also good eating, and then recreation of some kind. Yeah. And that that is very important to take care of yourself in that way. And, you know, we strayed so far away from post-traumatic growth, but I did want to talk about some of the factors that are very important post-traumatic growth. Um, and and self-care is one of those huge things that it helps throughout any kind of struggle. Yeah. Any kind of stressful event. 
self-care is its principle. And you got to be really creative. You got to find all kinds of different ways to take care of yourself. I, I've, he- I've heard, I saw it somewhere online where, the, I don't know if this is true. It makes sense. I don't know if this is true, but I heard that or saw or read that veterans that would come back from World War One and World War Two had lower incidence of PTSD or shell shock as they called it. And they believe that it may be due to being on a ship for months coming back and they got to talk to each other. And because here in America, you're just a few hours, boom, you're right back here and you're in Vons, you know, and maybe 24 hours prior, you're in a full on firefight. Yeah. So there's, you know, I don't know what the validity of that, because I don't even know if they track PTSD back then. No. Yeah. So obviously it would probably come in lower on the scale. I mean, it was trouble enough that they had to start developing therapies. Right, and they had to start doing all the things that we're doing. So it, it, people definitely came back with it. I mean, I think there's people throughout history that have had PTSD, and it. it's an interesting lens to look at history. You know, uh, um, I, I can't speak to the exact prevalence, um, but it was a brutal World War One was extremely brutal, and uh, a big part of the development of PTSD is if you have support, if you're part of you know a group that is supporting you. You know, that is um, giving you that unconditional positive regard or just uh, just allowing you to talk, you know. And if if you have those things in your life, you're much more likely to thrive. And that's why faith, religion, spirituality, whatever it is, you know, um, can be so profound in helping people adjust after experiencing trauma or even extremely stressful events. So moving forward, if someone recovers from a trauma... Mm -hmm and they enter the phase of post-traumatic growth, does that mean that everyone goes to post-traumatic growth? So, like I said, there's philosophical difficulties with the idea of post-traumatic growth that, you know, you have people that are self-reporting most time in research. I have to evaluate myself and say, I am this compared to who I was years ago, right? So it's really hard to do that math in your head. You can see certain things that you do better or worse, you know, um, there's obviously like, it's easy for me to evaluate my waistline. Obviously it's gotten bigger over the years, right? But I can't like, tell. I like, Sexy how do I know ever. if I'm, if I'm a better person, if I'm smarter, if I have better memory, it's difficult to always measure those things, right? Especially if you're coming out of a bad situation. Like Eddie Murphy had an old joke on his Delirious album. I don't know if you remember, that's probably that's before your time, I think maybe. <laughs> but he was talking about if you've never had a cracker before, like you're starving and someone hands you a saltine, you're like, is that a Ritz? Like, it's so delicious, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you're coming out of trauma, out of being grinded out. Mm-hmm. You could feel really good. And it might, like I said, it might just be that cognitive switch or it could genuinely be the motivation. Like we talked about discrepancies. Um, they, they, they think that a, a smaller number of people actually grow after trauma. You know? Oh, and really? They, you know, less than 50% was the estimate that I was hearing um, because it's just very difficult to quantify it. And there may be, research difficulties in measurement. Um, but it, it, it does require, I think the perfect mixture and a lot of motivation. And, you know, some people are just trying to survive and thrive takes a whole nother set of skills and effort. And it takes hopefully a good provider to support them or a good environment around them, um, to keep them going. See, I feel like a different person. I feel like a completely I mean, not completely. That's an exaggeration. But I feel like um, going through mind and healing, like I, I see it as if you go through trauma, it seems like you hit a, you hit a, like a psychological crossroad 
I could either go um, almost negative, like perpetuate the behaviors that led me, that caused the trigger or the lifestyle or whatever. Yeah. Or I can go the other way, you know, like self-growth and look inward and not want to be that person. And I, th- I, I'm this, I feel like I went the other way. Like I, like I see everything different now. Like I don't even, I'm not saying I'm perfect and I could walk on water or anything like that, but Ooh, thanks. yeah, <laughs> but it's like, um, I can, even like the person who triggered me, mm-hmm. I have no ill will. That's beautiful. Yeah, and it's and I and I could genuinely say that because I can sue them, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, for a lot of money. <laughs> okay. And I don't. And I, I literally pray pray for them every morning and every night. Like I I pray that they heal because you have to be damaged yourself to do that to another person. Yeah. To that degree. And so and I had to be damaged to do the bad things I did. Like it's almost like I'm not even in a position to judge you. You know, and so, but that type of thinking, it, it didn't cross my mind. There's almost like a, a, a arrogance, like a, um, uh, Brett mentioned this, uh, um, they call it terminal uniqueness, you know, where you're, that's a new one. Yeah. I had to Google it. It's an actual term. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your it, it, terminal uniqueness is when like, um, like I'll just use an example outside myself. Like if someone goes, what? Jeff won the lottery and then he went bankrupt four months, four years later. And, you know, and, and now he's in more debt. If I, that was me, I would have never done that. But you don't, we have an ignorance. We don't know what you faced, what temptations or whatever, you're, the, whatever's going on. We've never experienced it, but we're going out of ignorance. We make a solid conclusion about ourselves, mm, you know? Yeah, and it's used in drug rehabs from what I understand where, where someone comes in with like in the group and they go, yeah, these guys got problems, not me. Terminal uniqueness. Like, yeah, I'm the, I can get over mine. I'm just kind of dabbling in it, experimenting, yeah. you know, because that happens sometimes. But so um, I mean, uh, if I had to look at what you're doing right now is a huge part of the growth process, you're, you're paying it forward. And that's another thing that I see a lot in the patients that I deal with that you know, I have patients that are tetraplegic, which is also quadriplegic. They can only move their neck. Oh, my God. Sometimes they can only move their eyes or their jaw. These are war? Uh, these are, you know, a lot of veterans um, also are human beings. They come home and they don't necessarily are combat veterans, but they, they get into car accidents. Okay, got They it. get hurt at jobs. And, and you know, if they've ever in the, been in the military, sometimes they can get benefits, like if they got hurt during their service. But a lot of them just go to the VA because they have had this service that they did one point in their life. So not every, and, and we don't have a lot of conflicts going on right now. Mm-hmm. So there's no one in like Afghanistan, like back when we were having the conflicts, you'll see a lot of inflows of those injuries. Mm-hmm. Look up right now. Thank goodness. There's no current war. Okay. I, I stopped myself from saying war. Cause I was like, am I allowed to say what you do? <laughs> like, yeah. like, like in that detail. Yeah. Okay. War conflict battles, whatever. Okay. Yeah. There's nothing real. It's really rare that if we have, you know, let's say soldiers abroad that get injured, they'll go to the really main centers like in Richmond, Virginia, you know, some of these other big hospitals where mine is more of a, a you know, it is a, a big deal, but it's, we don't get active duty very often. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so. W- would you, s- sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to go back to the idea of um, 
the idea of growth that, you know, paying it forward, I, I, you know, with these soldiers, they, they want to give back. They want to inform other people. They want to be a mentor to other people, share their story, talk about their pain. And that's a huge part of recovery, even in substance use. Yeah. You know, and AA, they always, um, two things that AA has. And like I talked to you, you can see that I look for common factors in treatment more than I look for, you know, what the mysticism is around it. Like I yeah. said, I'm, I'm a skeptic. So with AA, that does two things really well. It has accountability and has social support. You know, if you look for other things that have that, it will benefit you. Obviously, accountability, social support, what has that? Jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Right? So it can help people go through difficult times just by going and training. And I don't necessarily have to talk about the difficult thing I'm dealing with, but I can go choke somebody and I feel better afterwards. Or just even hanging out afterwards and talking, right? Or you're stretching like, hey, man. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And that 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 can help us feel great. That's like self-care to me, right? I use jiu-jitsu self-care. So... Um, you need to get back to competing. Just putting it out there, dude. I, I want to. Right? Do it. One day. Um, right now I have, you know, really focusing on the career stuff, you know. Jiu-jitsu is more important. Focus okay. on family. I've had some family that have gone through some health stuff, so we're taking um, care of them. So, yeah. Yeah, as soon as everything's resolved, then, yeah, I, 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 I'm not rushing to pay $100 to get a T-shirt. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> I know exactly what you're